and welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 100. Um, as we got to episode 100, I've done this as a special treat for me and finally allowed myself to cover a band I said I never really do because I think the discussion has been probably had at length on the, this artist. Like, we're doing Opeth for this episode, but I thought it'd be a fun treat as I managed to get to 100 episodes. And because I wanted to not just be talking to myself on this one, I brought in two friends who really know this band well as well. Um, so we have Matt from the Punishing Brutality podcast. Hey Phil, well I did not know this was going to be episode one hundred. I was I was honoured. Did I not mention? I that? was honoured before, <laughs> but now I'm like, I'm I'm quite intimidated. But it's it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Good to talk to you. And uh, and the second guest is uh, Ian from previously Are You Morbid and now the Shuffle Repeat podcast. Hey there. Um, yeah, the surprise about it being the 100th episode was spoiled to me, but I'm still honored to be here. <laughs> I really should have mentioned that ahead of time. I uh, did, not, <laughs> did not communicate this one well. Anyway, so we decided we'd discuss Opeth, but because I've done these episodes in the past where you do a discography, particularly a quite devices discography like Opeth's, we thought we'd just do the, the, the classic sort of death metal era and not get into the muddy waters of the the four uh, more prog rock leaning albums. That's no judgment on them. I actually have time for some of those, but we will just be covering Orchid through to Watershed with our sort of usual chronological order view where there'll be a bit of history, but this is primarily going to be a discussion of the music. So those of you who are fans of Opeth um, may know there's a bit of history to them pre getting into Orchid, but I'm just going to start from where the actual music starts. So, Michael Ackerfeldt and Co. There was a load of lineup changes before they settled on that initial group of four. But because they're a band that never did any demo tapes, they got sound to candlelight off the strength of one horrible sounding like rehearsal tape. The music's good. It's just it sounds like you know it's a single mic in a rehearsal room. That lineup were able to in 1995 go into studio and have a full label backing to record the hour-long Orchid. Um, and that lineup at the time is not many names that are still with the band. So you've got Michael Ackerfeldt on guitar and vocals, Peter Lindgren, who is like long-time sort of second guitarist and sort of, I think, main co-writer on this album, and uh, drummers, a drummer Anders Norin, and then the, the most recent um, addition to the band at this point was uh, Johan de Farfalla on bass. And Orchid's a really interesting one because it's very much a very creative band finding their sound. It's particularly an album that, with the context of the fact it's 1995, you know, right in the time where, say, melodic death metal was starting to be a thing, you know, Obef being a Swedish band, kind of at the forefront of some of that, but then taking interesting ideas from the burgeoning black metal scene, elements of almost folk metal, and mixing that in with a core of the death metal sound they really loved. And they expanded out to make this incredibly progressive, somewhat difficult to digest album um, <laughs> with very interesting artistic design as well to go along with it. Um, I'll throw it to you first, Ian. So how, how do you rate Orchid as, as an album? It, it is a tough one because looking back, I tend to think of those first two Opeth albums as as much black metal as I do death metal, which really makes it feel separate and apart from a lot of their later discography um that being said 
even from that first album, I feel like the atmosphere on it is just impeccable. Uh, it really captures a sense of darkness and menace when it wants to, or longing and melancholy, as Opeth, I think, is most famous for being able to evoke. Um, and I'm, I may get into it more with uh, the next album, but it always struck me that as much as I love the songs on those first two albums... They wrote enough music for, I think, probably five albums if they ever allowed themselves to repeat an idea once they had it. Um, those first couple albums are stream of conscious in a way that I don't really think I can name a single band pulling off so well. So even if they haven't fully established the sound that they were going to go for, they were still onto something really awesome with those first couple albums sonically. Just that sense of, here's the idea. It's gone. And uh, to a degree, I think it did stifle uh, the ability to make even more albums out of it. But maybe it's also credit to their creativity that they felt like it was perfectly fine that they could just use an idea once and ditch it. Because uh, that's some serious confidence to think, yeah, we don't need to repeat anything. We got more. But I, I'd put it sort of towards the for the early stuff. But uh, that's... That's no uh, slight against it. I still think it was an incredible album, an excellent debut, and really crossed over you know, the best of what Sweden had going on with their metal scene at the time. So for a first shot at it, I thought they did a wonderful job. How about yourself, Matt? Like, What, what do you feel about the, the debut? Well, it's interesting that um, Ian said almost exactly the same thing that I was going to say, which is almost that the... I consider the first two albums to be the black metal albums and then what comes after that to be the death metal albums with perhaps my arms kind of a transitional one um, and um, yeah I completely agree like all of the hallmarks of the band are there it's those those wonderful twin guitar harmonies you can see that Iron Maiden influence and in it but but it's it's strange because when you listen to it now like almost all of the all of the album is is those twin guitar harmonies and and there's there's very little um kind of chunk to it or and there's certainly no chugging right like it's it's not got those heavy um death metal riffs that become so much a a part of the i guess the the, the variation within the sound that, that that characterizes the future albums where you can go from this really really melodic stuff to these really kind of death metal influence pieces that the, the morbid angel kind of isn't really here yet um but the songwriting is there these incredibly long songs that are just still really really interesting and really cool like i i, I love the songs on, on on this album i love the melodies that they're writing i think that they do some incredibly interesting stuff with the vocals as well that just doesn't really kind of sit in either the norwegian swedish black metal scenes or the or the or the death metal scene in sweden at the time so they, they they were already forging their own path and um i mean i could sit i could talk about the production a little bit like the kind of tappy drums and stuff of just kind of they just they just kind of were abandoned development but the ideas that are there like were just so unique um and thinking about it at the time is is just it's just fascinating to listen to like like ian it's it's never going to be my favorite opeth album 
but I, I, I just always really, really enjoy listening to it every time because it's, it's just really cool music. <laughs> it, but but it, you think about it in contrast of what's to come and that's where yeah. it kind of like okay well this, it's foundational but i love it. I, I want to touch on that kind of the, the idea of like, particularly you was, was saying of like it being this like just mash of like it's an hour essentially of hundreds of little ideas and i think a lot of that speaks to because they were never a demo band they never got to experiment with like Oh, here's an idea that maybe doesn't go anywhere versus one that they expanded out. Like, for example, um, the track Forest of October, which is a really good song, is a reworking of the first track Opeth ever wrote, Requiem for Lost Souls, which I think you can hear the original of on that rehearsal tape. And I think the band at the time were just in the practice <laughs> space all day, every day, writing riffs. So when they came to record this, they just had millions of them to chain together. Like, actually, something else Ian was saying of, like, it being the one example of that kind of logic. I'd say another quite contemporary to them album that does a similar thing, maybe with less incoherency, is Edge of Sanity's Crimson. Feels like another album where they just, like, we had a thousand ideas and we strung them all together. Yeah, it's a solid point, especially given uh, <laughs> the band were obviously good friends of Dan Sueno at the time. I don't know if... Uh... His influence was already rubbing off, even just on album one. But it, it makes sense to think of that as kind of a uh, companion piece to both the early Opeth albums. Totally. And I think actually something Matt really lent into is like, you have to go into this. It, it sort of does almost sit as a four fans only album, or at least an album you look at in the context of the time, because there are issues with the production, like the drums sound a bit rubbish, the... The bass tone's really weird. It's very, very, like, clangy and poppy against the, like, very melodic guitar work. The, the kind of actual main criticism I have of Orchid as an album is I think the first half of it is really well constructed and then everything after Forest of October goes really extremely into here's some great ideas. We had no idea how to connect them together. Like, Twilight Is My Robe has some of the best riffs in it and then it just keeps stopping and starting completely randomly. Like, amazing two-minute section, a quiet bit, and an amazing two-minute section. But still really fun, especially if you consider it's essentially a bunch of teenagers doing this. Like, or, you know, very young musicians on their first outing. Like, it just has that incredible youthful energy. The similar thing you get from going back and listening to, say, like, those Nihilist demos or something. Where it's, it's not the most perfect, polished version of a thing, but actually... It's kind of perfect in the context of the time.
so that brings us to 1996's Morning Rise. Um, the band were, I didn't mention for Orchid, they were recording with Dan Swano at his own studio, um, and this is another album put out on Candlelight Records with the same lineup, again recording at uh, Dan Swano's studio. Morning Rise, though, does see a bit of an evolution of the, the band's sound. The songs have become, I would say, certainly more focused. There's less of a massive explosion of riffs on each of them. They're more take an idea and expand it out over a longer period of time to give you a look at a song like Night in the Silent Water and it's um, sort of incredibly long building atmospheric section in the in the centre of it. There's less lead guitar as well, whereas they say you look at a song like um, In the Mist She Is Standing off of Orchid, full of solos. There's far less solos in Morning Rise and those that are there are more tasteful and somewhat less self-indulgent, I dare say. Also, it's interesting this time you start to see Opeth's position in the scene. But they're not a band that really blew up until many, many years into their career. But Michael is clearly getting some renown. So, not quite sure the chronology of... Um, the chronology? Whatever the word is. Of when these albums were recorded versus when they were released. But same year, he recorded vocals for almost the entirety of Catatonia's Brave Murder Day and did a load of guest performances on the aforementioned Crimson by Edge of Sanity, both vocals and lead guitar. So was clearly earning the respect of and making friends with the other people in Sweden doing these varied prog-influenced death slash black metal, extreme metal with a heavy 70s prog influence in there. Um... And yeah, Morning Rise, yeah, just a massive evolution. Also, the band started, I think, to find their, like, sort of visual identity. That, like, sepia photo of the bridge from Prior Park in Bath seems more in line with what their later album covers would look like, whereas um, Orchid being the pink flower is um, something very standalone of theirs. So I'll throw to you first, Matt. How do you get on with Morning Rise? Well, I, I think Morning Rise is really almost like a standalone album. Um, I think of it, um, well, first and foremost, I, I'd go back and say that, as you mentioned, Night in the Silent Water is one of my favorite Opeth songs of their entire catalog. I absolutely love that song. This enormous, cavernous sound and these incredibly epic riffs. It's just magnificent. I, I, I really, really, really love that song. Um, but I think really what the thing that makes this album stand out the most to me in Opus back catalog is uh, Johan's bass playing. Um, it particularly right at the beginning of the album, you have that incredible kind of like fretless, uh, like wobbling or I don't even know what he's doing. But like that's that's a completely unique sound in um, in Opus entire catalog. And, and Mendes never played like that. Um, and um that that particularly for me really really jumps out. I think the production is a little fuller than Orchid as well, though. I it still has incredibly tappy drums. But considering the uh, considering the richness of what they're trying to do, it's like a very strange drum engineering effort. <laughs> um, but um, it's again like exactly like what I was saying before. Just these incredibly great songs. And like you were saying, Phil, that the songs are a little bit more focused um, and also sticking with those riffs a little bit longer and really kind of like, you know, that and that's something that they do very well. I'll probably talk about this a little bit more, but just kind of riding out these really cool refrains and 
nobody's better at writing those those twin guitar harmonic refrains than well maybe iron maiden but okay yeah that's i that's iron maiden um but um yeah opeth just fantastic in 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 this album at doing that and just really really memorable songs throughout this one is definitely i'd call it a sleeper favorite of mine because when i want you know as quick as you can get a quick opeth fix Obviously, this is never the album I'm going to reach for, because I think the shortest song on here is still well over 10 minutes. Um, but it, it is, uh, it's a really marked step up from Orchid in a lot of ways. Sounds great. Uh, Matt beat me to the punch mentioning uh, the fretless bass playing all over this thing is really a... It's really something special in their discography that, you know, as as I'm trying to actually become a half-decent bassist myself over time, I really appreciate the uh, fact that that fretless bass is going on there. It, it really gives a unique feeling to things. And a lot more so than Orchid, this album just flows like a stream to me. You know, uh, as it goes, parts may sound familiar, but it's never the same thing over again. Uh, they've gotten a better sense of how to at least... As uh, as both of you, I think, have said at this point, or at least Matt, uh, to build an idea where instead of just being, here's a riff, now it's gone, they'll build a full section out of it before moving along and forgetting about it entirely. I think it really does work a little bit better overall. Plus, that last track, um, talk about Sign of Things to Come, like the weird Pink Floyd kind of influence to it. Um no harsh vocals on the whole thing. Uh, kind of their first crack at doing a long song with entirely clean vocals, and it remains a long-standing Opeth favorite of mine. Uh, the atmosphere on that song in particular is just uh, outstanding to me. But, yeah, uh, Michael feels like he's really getting more comfortable with his role as a vocalist in every possible way, and uh, it, it's... It's hard to compare to the rest of their discography, but taken on its own account, uh, it is an excellent album that I feel uh, several urges to revisit every autumn, so it was uh, nice to get to it. And uh, one final note, I, I binged through these albums, you know, uh, all nine of them in about three days. I did realize one thing Opeth is really good at is occasionally salvaging a riff and putting it on an album down the line. Because I'm pretty sure somewhere in the middle of Nectar, there's a the big charging riff from Demon of the Fall stuck in, just played a little bit different, which was a cool little Easter egg. I was going to bring this up. Yeah, there's a reason Nectar will never be played live by Opeth, because that is, like, definitely them going, ah, uh, this, this riff is brilliant, and we've wasted it on not the best song we've ever written, which <laughs> some would argue Demon of the Fall actually is. <laughs> We've not really touched on Michael's vocals at this point. Um, he's like He started out as a great screamer. The fact he was pulled in to do all the vocals for Brave Murder Day shows this guy had some like clout as a scream vocalist. But th at this stage, yeah, he's really trying out the cleans as well. And they're starting to you know, come together to a point where, as you say, to bid you farewell truly brilliant track like that and that's just him clean singing for the whole thing i mean he doesn't do a huge amount of vocals but they happily carry a quite sparse song in a way um 
And yeah, like, the only thing really letting this album down vocally is they haven't got the hang of lyric writing yet. Like, the, <laughs> one of the moments that always strikes me as quite egregious on this album is the, the scream of I will always love you, which will never not come across as slightly laughable. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good look. Especially in the 90s, right? Like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, unforgivable. The, the only real issue I have with Morning Rise, I think it's an amazing but standalone album, as Ian was saying, is it's just still a bit overwritten. A lot of the songs have like a minute they don't need. Like Advent is incredible, but has a minute on the end after like an amazing, what have been an amazing ending. And it just sort of meanders a bit. And say in a mi- more minor sense, Night in the Silent Water, amazing but I don't think it needs that like 20 seconds of acoustic guitar at the end. And when the album's already an hour long, it just felt like padding. And my most controversial opinion I'm probably going to bring up is, I think Night in the Sun, uh, not Night in the Sun, uh, Black Rose Immortal, which is a kind of a fan favourite because it's their longest ever song, is way too long. I think it's got five minutes on the end of it. It didn't need <laughs> at all. Well, I'm just, I'm just trying to think about how many songs you could potentially argue that about with Opeth, especially those little um those little acoustic bits at the end of the songs um but that's kind of part of the charm of the band it's i don't know it's kind of like why why we love them in in a, in a strange kind of way i completely understand what you're saying but go on make it 13 minutes 12 is for <laughs> yeah losers <laughs> The cruelest irony with the Black Rose Mortals, even if they did cut out those 15 minutes, it would still be the longest song they ever did, so I don't think anybody would be uh, too upset. <laughs> that's that's the one where I find it particularly egregious. I think I never would have noticed with the others if it wasn't for Black Rose Immortal being this, like, slightly overblown, like, oh, if you'd, if you'd edited this, this would be brilliant. But it's, it's an interesting album, actually, on that level of the band themselves kind of hate it. Because of what happened in the next few years in the Swedish scene with um, the rise of melodic death metal and a lot of those bands really getting into that twin guitar harmony, the incorporation of some folk elements and that, they felt they did something that other people then just did. Like Whereas the later albums, Opeth still believed to have quite a unique sound, and I would agree with them on this. This, I think they felt bands like In Flames and like Catatonia and that started doing something quite comparable particularly with you look at like say the first in flames album and so i don't hold it against it i love morning rise i think it has an incredible charm and atmosphere to it and a production that doesn't mar it like it does with orchid where it, it does actually sound like a very full product and i can accept those fans who actually say it's their favorite because it creates an atmosphere that none of their other stuff does as you both mentioned it has an odd black metal leaning to it like a very atmospheric feel yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's it's a great fucking album. It's just like like with everything else from the early period of Opeth, I think you kind of like end up viewing it in the context of what was to come, and and it kind of you it just they they just enhance the ideas so much more, and 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 it's inevit it's inevitable that you're going to look at it that way. But people that go and that's my favorite album, I can I can totally get it. The one thing that I would add is we haven't really mentioned the name of Anders Norden. Um, I I do think he, like much as I don't particularly love the drum engineering on these albums, I do really like his drumming. It's kind of, it's it's not particularly inventive. 
but there's almost a kind of kitty kernsy kind of element to his like double kick persistence that i really do quite enjoy um and and there's just that that kind of um just ongoing double kick tap that just it drives the songs along quite nicely and it it, it it's in again it's interesting because you know what's to come and and one of the great drummers and really really inventive uh grooves and fills there's not any groove here really there's just kind of we're gonna sit and double kick but it is kind of fun and i i i do quite like the drumming on the on these even if i don't quite like the sound i think he's got some pretty nice grooves if you will even though it's not a groovy album so I was going to come to this actually in a moment. Um, so obviously fans of Opeth will know soon after this, Martin Lopez takes over on drums. And there's a really great old quote from Martin Lopez saying when he first heard these two albums, I thought, oh, this Anders guy is kind of crap. He's like, he's nowhere near as fast as me. And then he had to sit down and learn his stuff. It's like, oh, this guy's actually got a like odd sense of groove. Like he's quite technically competent in a weird way it's not it's not showy but there's complexity hidden in there yeah absolutely and i think that with a lot of these um i don't think that the, uh, certainly bands in, in the uh melodic death metal scene actually that's probably i'm probably talking bullshit but like the uh, Ackerfeld writes a lot in three four and the, he's constantly kind of like playing a, a three four groove that you just hear all of the time nowadays and and i i don't really hear it that much in other swedish stuff though people will probably complain and tell me i'm full of shit uh ian any closing thoughts on morning rise uh not much it is really an album that deserves to be heard and i think in a certain mood it could be my favorite but i would never use that as my go-to answer for what's my favorite opeth album so it has its time and place, and it's just right for that.
up to this point, Opeth hadn't been successful. Like they they had a few diehard fans, but like weren't even really playing live, and particularly not much outside of the the country. And pre my arms rehearsed, the band almost broke up. Yoan was fired, um, mainly due to just different musical opinions. It would seem the guy really wanted to be playing hair metal, to be honest, and was this incredibly technical musician who uh, was possibly underutilized in the band. Like the guy played a fretless six-string bass back in '95. Like he's he was doing something quite different. He's gone through an interesting phase. Like he's now the um, he now works for the Christian Conservative Party of Sweden, and is also in 2017 appeared on a Nader Sadek album, or at least was briefly involved in the project. Although I don't think that's actually interesting, because I think if you're a metalhead and have played on any album, you've been in Nader Sadek at some point, even if you don't know about it. Um, and then soon after that, Anders um, left the band to move home to Brazil. Um, and the band almost broke up. But luckily, they managed to hook up with two young musicians who had just moved to the country from Uruguay, in the form of Martin Lopez and Martin Mendez. Um, uh, Lopez at the time, I'm not quite sure of how this happens, but Lopez got to Sweden and wanted to be in all the metal projects and briefly was in Amon Armour for their debut once sent from the Golden Hall. If you've not heard it, amazing Amon Armour album where the drummer totally steals the show by doing really technical fills throughout the whole thing. But that obviously didn't work out and he was desperate to join Opeth and stole, like, apparently, as the story goes, they had audition notes up in all, like, the guitar shops and stuff, and he took one and then took them all down so he could guarantee himself the gig because he was so <laughs> desperate to be in the band. Lopez also joined around this time, but the way things were going, they essentially needed a drummer and wanted to get into studio. So tried to train uh, Lopez up quickly. Mendez um, wasn't able to learn the bass in time. So going to the studio with Peter Lindgren on guitar and then Michael like felt bass guitar and vocals and at this point I think the writing is still collaborative like both Lindgren and uh, Michael are writing a huge amount of the riffs but they suddenly have this extremely fast technically gifted drummer Lopez is a very young guy you can actually hear they have a um, Lopez and Mendes have a, a black metal band from when they were in Uruguay, when they were both about 16, 17, called Eternal, who did like one demo with Mendes on vocals, which is, is an interesting point in time. But these guys came with some degree of pedigree, like they played a bit and had got technically gifted. And suddenly, My Arms Your Hearse was given this kind of drive, and it felt like a far more extreme album, more experimental in many ways as well. But it's, it's it, it just, again, it's another evolution of the sound. Yeah, I'll throw it to you first on this one. Uh, how do you get on with My Arms, Your Hearse? Well, it's a, it's a fucking masterpiece, isn't it, really? I mean, like, it, it yes, there's a huge transition um, from uh, Morning Rise. I think, you know, the influence of, of the new musicians, well, obviously not the influence of Mendes, but the influence of Lopez, cannot be understated and i'm gonna rule all over <laughs> lopez at some point in this podcast i'll save it for later um but the the just the heaviness is is there right i i mentioned like the kind of like the twin guitar harmonies that, that really kind of drove the first two albums are still present here and in fact um ian you mentioned like the pink floyd influence i mean like the the final track on this album epilogue is just pure gilmore i mean it's just absolutely just 100 percent pink floyd 
but like you have songs like um demon of the fall which obviously is one of their most famous songs and everybody knows that but like um maybe perhaps one that's a little bit less unsung is karma which is just a really extreme and brutal track that probably stands up as one of their heaviest songs that they ever wrote yet it it has that contrast that really would characterize the band going forwards of this really heavy rocking fast brutal death metal interspersed with 60s folk and these these kind of you know vocal harmonies and Ackerfeld's beautiful singing voice I mean it I just it's it's fantastic I, th- I think the band got more s- sophisticated for sure as as they went forward and and I think you know we'll, we'll talk about that later but I mean god what this is just a seminal album in the history of heavy metal it's great at a snap judgment if I had to pick a favorite Opeth album this would be the one and uh, it, it's even difficult for me to break down individual tracks besides uh, Deem of the Fall, because if I'm throwing this on, chances are I'm just listening to the entire thing in one sitting and not caring where one song ends, the next begins. Which is weird, because that puts it in, you know, I think the exact place that the first two albums wanted to be, where even though on this album they did start to learn maybe they should double back on a theme and reuse things later in a song for added impact. It still just flows so wonderfully. Um, Compositionally, this one is a a huge step up, even though I liked the other ones a lot. And uh, also sonically, I don't know how much, you know, Michael Ockerfeld guesting with Edge of Sanity played into this one, but... You know, all of a sudden his vocals dropped so far, uh, not in quality, just in a, in like their notes. And it's, it was kind of a shocking whiplash listening to this directly after Morning Rise, thinking, wow, they really kind of did change overnight on this one. Um, now I, I have to check because I didn't do my diligence. Is it true that Michael Lagerfeld was actually like really badly sick while recording the vocals on this album? I think I've heard that. Like, yeah, he was extremely unwell during this one. I think, though, truly, he's been unwell for quite a lot of their famous recordings. And he got really sick during Deliverance and Damnation. Hmm. Okay. Um, I guess maybe just because it's the first time. In his cleans especially... I can hear it, but given the concept of the album, you know, most of it being a ghost story for, you know, to break it down to its bare essentials, um, that feeling of sickness in the clean vocals actually, I think, works in its favor shockingly well, um, because he doesn't really sound like he does on this album, on any other albums, and it does give it this weirdness in the context of their discography that I think really makes it stand out. And even being sick, he turns in such a great performance. Um, you know, some of his cleans on this are among my favorites he's ever done. So, I mean, <laughs> credit to a guy who can be audibly sick for an entire recording, and it's amazing. I completely agree with that. Like the the refrain at the end of when, for example, is just like, oh, it's just it's so good, man. Like 
That's that's one of my favorite kind of clean vocal pieces. The whole Opus catalog, fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you you two have both put this really well. I, I'm I'm with you on when that that ending is one of my all time kind of favorite Opeth moments. I remember like as a kid first going back to this album. This is what that was the bit where I was like, oh no, this is brilliant. Like this might be a bit rawer than what I'm used to with say Ghost Reveries later in the future, but. The album clearly shows so much growth. Like they, they'd got so coherent. That, as Ian was saying, the album has an impossibly cool flow to it. It just, it, you don't take out individual tracks, barring maybe Demon the Fool, which we all know separately because it's such a live staple. But like lovely little touches, like lyrically, every song ends with the last line being the name of the next track. Is <laughs> is like a, a, such a great little <laughs> prog rock feel. Yeah, I was going to mention that. And that and that hints at hints at what they're about to do, right? Because like they, they they become this conceptual band, or, or at least temporarily. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really nice touch that um, I I, I kind of <laughs> love about this album. Lots of things I love about this album, but that's one of many. <laughs> I would say as well for like the more casual listener, if you're not that like sort of deep into the band, my arms rehearse, I think is. Kind of canonically, that's the point where they truly become Opeth. Those first two albums of them sort of finding their feet, experimenting with sounds, and then suddenly Miles Your Hearse sort of becomes the template for the next five or so albums, with obvious like exceptions. But there, there, there is a thing where like the album's suddenly locked into a groove, and you can now tell it's all Opeth. Whereas you take an isolated passage from In the Mystery of Standing, you show that to a casual Opeth fan, they're not going to recognise the band. This, I, I think they would almost across the board. And and their kind of cleaner moments are getting so much better. Stuff like Credence is a brilliant mellow track. And as you say, the epilogue just being this true Pink Floyd worship is just this lovely expression of like lead guitar at the end. Yeah, it's, it's a really brilliant album. Yeah, and I, I, I completely agree with you in the sense that I, I, I think of this, and strangely, it coincides with the Lopez membership of the band but it's it this is the beginning of their golden era and um not to denigrate the other two albums they are they're really good but like this is when opeth become opeth uh and uh you know it's just really kind of it's just so <laughs> cool to go back to it and listen to it and just hear how fucking good it is because like it's it, it's it's very it's still very raw compared to like other later albums and but my god it the, the songs on this are just fucking excellent all of them <laughs>
1999 still life which um so there isn't any massive internal thing other than mendez is now a recording part of the band he's finally adding his bass work to the band but there is a bit of an interesting change in terms of um what's going on around them so silver mimes rehearsed they never really got noticed and their their kind of contract with candlelight who are quite a small label they've had a load of cool stuff on them but they've always been super underground comes to an end and they start shopping around for new um new labels trying out a load of stuff very nearly getting signed to earache which in Ooh. 1999 would have been a fucking disaster so luckily that didn't happen and they ended up on peace fill records which really suited them and while they didn't they're not about to explode just yet but i think they finally started getting themselves on the map so we're still life they were still in um in studio with um frederick uh Norston, who um recorded the last album so there's a step up from Dan Sono's kind of like messy home space that he was using um for those first two but it's still an entirely analog studio and this is the time where digital recording is coming in so still life has this really fraught process around it it's quite a it's an album I think the band hated recording because apparently stuff was going wrong all the time um but for me it is my personal favorite Opeth album I think it's one that gets less love than some of the others because, as uh, Matt was alluding to, it's another story-driven album. It is a full-concept album with... like Lyrically, I think this is where the band truly evolved into something special. But the story is really sad, and the whole album has this really kind of downtrodden feel. It, it's, it's, it is just a bleak album, whereas their later stuff would have more of an emotional range. The other thing I think was still life, like we mentioned before, they've they brought in some folk influences to the band very early on, on top of their kind of prog rock leanings. Still life with that nod to Van de Graaff Generator in the title, this is the first album where I really noticed the jazz influence coming in, particularly in the bass and drum work. Mendes doesn't really show off in this album. You can till, still tell he's quite nervous about his contribution. He's not as complex as he would be on follow-ups. But he's still doing something. The bass is more of a presence than it was on My Arms Your Hearse. But the drum work has got very out there. And the songwriting has like got more complex again. This is a far more um, intricate album than My Arms Your Hearse. Not necessarily better or worse for it, but it, it, it's a... It's a minor change in direction. I think it's an incredibly beautiful album, but possibly one of the more hard work out Opeth albums. It takes a, a while to digest what's going on in Still Life. Uh, well, I gotta say, I can totally get why this would be a, a particular favourite of yours, because, you know, the last one being my favourite, 
this really is just an expansion of those ideas into something, as you said, even more complex, um, even more self-confident, I would say, uh, despite the recording uh, difficulties they had. And there are so many wonderful moments on this album. One thing that really stuck out on this one compared to any of the rest, um, this album, I noticed they make a lot of use of just these ringing out way longer than is comfortable guitar notes. Um, especially, I'll just lay it on the line, my favorite Opeth riff is the uh, main chorus riff of um, Moonlap's Vertigo. And I think that's largely helped by just those creepy guitar lines hovering over this really churning, nasty riff below it. And something about that, it gives the album, again, this very otherworldly feeling, which, even though it's not a ghost story, it ends up being a ghost story. So um, I feel like that adds so much to the atmosphere. It is is a very sad album, and... uh, I like that. Um, conceptually, I think this is where Opeth peaked as far as their lyrical sense went. Uh, there was a missed opportunity later that we'll get to, but Still Life as a full concept just works so wonderfully. And uh, it also has probably my favorite just straight folk song there is in, in the uh, form of Benighted, which also got me into Camel, so you know, extra credit for that. But uh, it's still it's still so funny to me that Michael Lagerfeld used to introduce that by saying, yeah, this is just a song you ripped off from Camel. So check them out. (laughs) But I've always loved that self-deprecating sense he has live. Uh, You see it in the bloodbath live videos, too, and all that. But (laughs) yeah, um, this album really feels like the one where they were fully they really believed in themselves and everything that they were capable of, which, but, you know, getting to the point where I actually think that's always difficult, you can tell they were really finely confident in their abilities as songwriters here, and uh, it's, I guess, to fly in the face of uh, last album, it's kind of the capstone on what is actually my favorite decade of Opeth's discography. How interesting. I I, I don't quite share Phil's... Um... Phil's placement of this at the tippy top of the uh, Opeth canon, but it's somewhere nearby. I I I think that certainly the the mid section of this album is 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 almost my could be argued my some of my my favorite Opeth stuff. You've got, I mean, like you said, Ian, like Benighted is just probably their best acoustic song. I I I really I think I think that's true. It's it's just a brilliant little clean number that they I you know they've they've done a lot of them but for, but for me that's that's also my favorite. Um, you've got their first real kind of accessible crowd pleaser in face of Melinda, which they'd never done before. You know, like but it's still bleak and miserable as fuck. But like it's like something that you can clap along with and 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 sing and you know people go nuts for it like i i the, i do have one little complaint with that is that now like because i've listened to the roundhouse tape so much i like when i listen to the album like i always find that they play it just a little slow but anyway 
that's that by the by but, but and then and when serenity painted death you know you've got like the fucking like kick-ass like pinched harmonics and like you know kind of really chuggy like death metal riffs and like you know shredding solos and stuff like i mean fuck it, it just it just fucking kicks ass like there's there's the, i i i do feel though for me personally that this album is really like heavy in the middle um and the more and to a lesser extent white cluster are kind of like less less favorite bookends to the album than the stuff that's happening in the middle like moonlaps vertigo is that would be in my top 10 opeth songs without question benighted probably too so just fucking brilliant album i i one of my favorite albums of all time i don't know what else to say about it but somewhere sits somewhere within the opeth canon <laughs> so it's funny funny you say that I, i'm with you white cluster is the one downside this album it's, it's not terrible by any means but it the album doesn't end on a real crescendo like some of their later stuff would but i think the more is one of their best ever songs personally I don't know why I always thought that one is one of the best Opeth build-ups ever. Like, that start, like, the first five minutes is, I think, in truly incredible progression. Where more, like, they have the Morning Rise level of building on an idea excessively. And that is just doing it and, but nailing it with so much more intensity because of the lineup they've now got. And the fact Michael's going a bit deeper in his growls and that. When it gets heavy, it gets so heavy. And that, that that was, for me, I really love it. It's one of those early loves with Opeth of their, their really great manoeuvres from heavy to light and back again, uh, or vice versa, I should say. And actually, this, this is something that I think this album is more exemplary than, say, the, the predecessor for. It's when they really start getting the hang of, like, the true Opeth signature, I think, of the heavy to light change, the smoothly and logically moving between stuff that can be as simple as acoustic guitars and a single clean vocal line to full-on blasting and scream vocals and make it sound like the most natural thing in the world. And I, I think this album is exemplary for that, whereas My Arms, Your Hearse, they're still, still learning that craft. It's, it's no no like word against My Arms, but I, I feel that, that one, they're, they're more conservative with the changes, whereas... This one, they go pretty out there with um, the ideas of riffs they try to string together, and I think they're successful. I can't argue with any of that. That's that's absolutely spot on, Phil. That's why we listen to your show. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's 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 just a it's just a, a brilliant brilliant album from start to finish. I, I absolutely adore this record. I I listen to it very often, um, and. Uh, I think it's it's a it's an excellent, perhaps, introductory album to Opeth for people. I think maybe if they if they if they're willing to sit down and listen to an album, and uh, you know not not get kind of too uh, freaked out by the prog because it's there, but it's not like it's not yet overpowering, um, and it has the kind of like big, crowd pleasing hits too. So. Uh, yeah, good. It's a good starting point. In response to you saying that, I gotta say, uh, the great irony is this is the last classic era Opeth album I ever actually got around to. I'm not sure how that happened, 
But um, I definitely feel like since it was the last, I felt like I owed it time to really think it over and listen to it a lot of times. It does grow on you, even as direct as the songs are. I think just as with all Opeth, but especially this one, sitting and just putting in the work of listening a few times, it'll just open its secrets to you over time. And even if it's not your favorite, it's going to be one of your favorites. will know we are about to come to a very kind of momentous album this is this is the point where opeth as a band will suddenly become a known thing something worth noting just ahead of this is we've got to the year 2000 now which is the point where bloodbath the death metal band formed of initially members of catatonia dan swanner and michael ackerfeld forms and puts out their initially almost joke uh, demo breeding death that turned out to be actually brilliant and that starts running alongside Opeth, like the first like real side project of any members of the band. I didn't believe that had any negative effect on the band, but it, it's interesting, I guess, comparing some stuff that will come up in the future. The Michael had an outlet for his love of early 90s death metal. But anyway, we are about to move on to 2001's Blackwater Park, which is the album that suddenly put the band on the map. So they'd all be, always been slightly under the radar, one, because I don't think they were touring a huge amount and didn't have incredible management uh, or anything like that. Two, because just metal wasn't a huge deal in 1998. Like, it, they they were playing a style of essentially death metal, a genre that people had kind of moved away from, mixed with old man prog rock. It, very uncool thing to be doing <laughs> in, in the late 90s. But 
In the early 2000s, something magical happened, and people suddenly had time for prog rock again, and OPEF were placed to, like, really take the world by storm at this point. And with 2001's Blackwater Park, they put out an album that did what it needed to do to just be the most exciting thing a whole group of teenagers had ever heard. The sound of the album takes a massive leap because the band, lineup there's been no change, there hasn't even been a change in studio between this and the last one, but they got in touch with a man uh, Michael Ackfeld had been a huge fan of, Steve Wilson of the incredibly influential prog band uh, Porcupine Tree, and asked him to come in and help with the recording. So I believe he was only with them for a couple of weeks on this album, much like his influence later with the band. But what he really added to this album, which had never been there before, was keyboards and backing clean vocals, and just a general influence adding to the prog element of the band. So we still have all those massive, heavy riffs. You look at the title track or the, the opener, Leper Affinity, they still have these really aggressive death metal sections, like very reminiscent of tracks like Serenity Painted Death from the previous album. But the prog elements have moved to the next level because we have this like Mellotron in the mix now. Um, we have like, as I say, we have now have harmony clean vocals and so on. There is there's a lot of elements we've never heard of the band before that suddenly happened on Blackwater Park. And it comes together to make an album which I think is universally accepted to be the favourite Opeth album. Like, it's, we say we, we've got different personal favourites here, but I think this is the fan favourite. This is the only album they've ever played in full live. Yeah, this is the album that got me into, let's say, extreme metal. I, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, after, uh, you know, a bit growing up in the 90s with Metallica and, and, slayer and pantera and that kind of stuff and then growing thoroughly disinterested um as a new metal came along uh i remember somebody somebody sent me probably in around the year 2000 or something like that some for some reason somebody sent me a, um, a, a recording of karma from from my arms your hearse and i kind of listened to it and i thought well this is cool but i never kind of really went back to it and then for, and then a, few, a couple of years later, I don't know, I was just like, oh, I should go back to that Opeth band because like, I really like that song. And I landed on this album and my life has changed completely ever since. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a life-changing album for me and I, I, I definitely have a, a lot of thoughts about this, I, I, but I probably won't <laughs> talk about them all. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I think you had it you had it right, Phil. I like, but like, I might almost posit it in in a slightly different way. Like, I I think this is the album where Opeth become a rock and roll band. Like, there's a mid paced riffing element to this. There's a there's a fun to this that simply just did not exist on the previous albums. Like, you know, they kick you in the face with Leper Affinity. And then they just drop into riffs, fucking riffs. And like, they just didn't really do that in a sustained way on the, on any album up to this. There they were, they were fucking riffs on like, you know, earlier albums, but this album is just riff, riff, riff. And then it goes, 
you know, like really your first kind of like, you know, truly damnation style songs, which are just like, not, not like Benighted, which is kind of almost like a jazzy interlude, but like actual acoustic songs. It, it, it's, it's it's bouncing around it feels very long because it's so immersive and it well i mean it is long, <laughs> it is long. And, the, and the the final track is is 13 minutes long but like i don't know if there's that there's just like just a, a, an in, an intensity to the riffing here that uh, it has so, some of the, actually let me there's an impetus to the riffing that they, they, they drive the songs forwards with these just wonderful riffs that they stick with and it's a rhythm section thing and not just a lead guitar section thing it's the entire band moving in unison and they push 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 and then they just fucking keep going and it's just like it's just a magical magical fucking experience with some of these riffs like that there, there are so many of, of them throughout the album leper affinity funeral portrait and then of course the just the i mean i mean the greatest fucking riff of all time is in is in blackwater park um uh, you probably know which riff i'm talking about listeners if you don't go back and listen you will know too um it's it's a it's a fucking masterpiece i i i i could ramble on about this forever but i'm gonna let ian speak for a minute because (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Otherwise, I'll just talk you. Well, I off. appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Um, yeah, this one, I it still life was the last one of Opeth's early run that I checked out. This was the second to last, so I don't know if it's the fact that I was used to the sound they had already established. This one didn't hit me quite as hard as some of the other ones did, but. There is, uh, there's just no denying the quality here, and uh, I think in large part the fact that Stephen Wilson was so heavily involved um, is part of why this one I, I still love it, um, because my my pipeline to extreme metal was you know all through high school, technically still today, but you know whatever. Uh, my favorite band was Genesis, and. You know, from there, it's, well, what's going on in Prague nowadays? Fear of a Blank Planet had come out, so there I was, okay, let's check out Porcupine Tree. Got way into that, uh, then checked out Deadwing, which had Michael Ockerfeld in a couple guest spots, and eventually I thought, you know what, I'm not into the whole metal thing, but this guy works with uh, Stephen Wilson a whole lot. Let's check out this Opeth band. Um, and Blackwater Park, I think, is where that love for Porcupine Tree really, um, carries over the best into Opeth's discography, because, yeah, it has a lot of elements that actually, Porcupine Tree hadn't even become a metal band again by the point. I think this album might be responsible for, you know, the, uh, sudden heaviness that In Absentia kicked off, but... There are so many great songs in this album. Yeah, it, it flows wonderfully. It does start on its best note for me. Uh, Leper Affinity, especially like the last two minutes of it, is some of my favorite stuff Opeth has ever done. And it, yeah, it just it's just consistently excellent. 
again, the confidence that you saw really blossom on still life has carried over, plus, you know, a further tightening of their abilities as musicians. And it really feels like even if this isn't ultimately one of my favorite Opeth albums, if you asked me to pick out a flaw with it, I think I would uh, just stare at you blankly for a few minutes and say, I don't know. Yeah, so that's spot on. That is, that, that That's the point. But where I say, like, Still Life is my favourite, is because, if I'm honest, I feel this run of, um, so for me personally, I think the Myom's Your Hearse through to Ghost Reveries is, is nigh on flawless. And Blackwater Park is a high point for what Matt said. It is so memorably riffy. Like, there's a lot which I, I kind of feel bad that these tracks almost get forgotten. Stuff like Funeral Portrait. I don't know outside of that live set like where they play the whole album i don't know that song's ever played live but that's got like five absolutely killer riffs in it <laughs> fuck yeah fuck yeah riffs in that song are absolutely amazing and i talk about the the more as like having an incredible build-up but that bit so from the second half of bleak where it goes very mellow into the most extreme riff at the end is true beauty that is that is opeth like at their like absolute best yeah i i I think bleak is the first song i would play to anybody who has never listened to death metal before and and i i want to sell them on opeth because it's it's their most accessible song um yet it's it rocks the fuck out it absolutely rocks the fuck out. That 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 second time the chorus comes in the devious movements bit. That's exactly what I was talking about um, with that kind of like just settling into a groove. Like nobody thinks of Opeth as being a groove band, even though like Lopez is one of the grooviest drummers ever, in my opinion. But like they they just they just settle into these riffs and the rhythm section just starts pumping and they just fucking sit there for a bit and it just works so perfectly and that that kind of second half latter end of bleak is just a the perfect perfect example of that it's just a fucking catchy song too as well like it's just really really nice so jumping off the back of that i think it's worth bringing up we're discussing them as a prog band but actually Talking of like you know sitting in a groove and being a catchy band in that that way, they play mainly in four four. They do experiment with other time signatures. It's certainly in there, but they're not like a Dream Theater style band who will rarely mess around with the traditional format. Like Opeth have rocking riffs, and as you say, like maybe this is the album that really introduced that. But they they play in four four like an old seventies like hard rock heavy metal band in places, just with the intensity turned up with you know, standing on the shoulders of the giants of all the 90s extremity added into that format. I I gotta say, you mentioning how groovy they are does remind me. It's still one of my favorite interview quotes in all of metal when uh, Gene Hoagland had to fill in on an Opeth tour and, like, figured their set out in a matter of days. And, uh, an interviewer asked him to do that, and his response was just to say, it's all in the groove, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do I do want to add like r- towards the end of um, Blackwater Park, um, maybe not the final riff, but that there's there's a there's a piece where um, 
where Wilson just really allows Mendes's bass playing to kind of come through and it just starts clanking away and you can hear it it's like really really loud and 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 that's like the first time for me that Mendes's playing is like really prominent in in Opeth, it's strangely right at the end of this album. Like, I mean, there are there are other, other little bits and pieces, but he would become much more, I think, present in the mix in the album after this. Um, well, well, maybe even two after this. But um, yeah, like his his bass playing has really come forward here and is really kind of present. I think in this album. I think there's a huge confidence here in what Mendes is doing versus still life where he, he he's following the guitars. Um, a song where actually, for me, it really stands out, and this is probably me being, like, listeners know I'm a bass player, I'm a fucking nerd about bass stuff. Um, Drapery Falls is a song I've learnt to play off this album, and that is the one for me where I suddenly notice Mendes in that main theme, that, that long repeating riff from that track. His bass line is so divergent from the guitars and adds so much with this complex, almost, like, jazzy like really diverging from the chords being played but adding like an extra groove that isn't there in any other instrument and he will do that more and more in future particularly when we get out to like ghost reveries end but as matt's saying there there's starting to be that confidence and yeah that clank of the bass in the middle of um blackwater park is a subtle touch that just makes that song i think i i was reading akafeld um earlier today in, in my vinyl reissue or whatever it is of this album and and he's talking about how you know we, we we talked about the production previously but like really it was engineered by swano you know like it was engineered by nordstrom or whatever his name i forget but this is the first album where they actually had a producer and you're right like he was he was only there for two weeks and he only produced the apparently produced the vocals and and the uh and the 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 guitars but this for me i think one of the things that sets this album a little bit apart from still life is is this sense of richness in 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 the production sound and the engineering and everything just sounds big it it just sounds really large and i i i just i don't quite i I think it's just subtly bigger than than still life and i I feel like that's a separator i think that's completely fair i i think there is sonically this is just a better recorded album there is no and i think the band themselves would admit they're frustrated with how still life sounds like uh whereas blackwater park it just sounds brilliant for a 2001 recording and i think this is the first time they start fucking around with digital stuff because steve wilson was a really early adopter of digital things loads of the effects are stuff off his laptop it's not he has the um the real instruments there as well but there is suddenly a computerized element coming into them so the bands start to become more perfect it starts to you know have not have the flaws of rushing a recording in an analog studio where takes are just lost because the tape machine's broken and that means the sound is suddenly full and it yeah and it, that's why i think blackwater park like many would see as the first true masterpiece because 
the sound is so there. There's so much richness and bass in the mix, which there's never been on an Opeth album before this. Like, it's never had that, like, true, like, not bass guitar, but, like, bass is in the low end of the sound. Like, it's the first time the drums and bass sound really well recorded. So moving right along, we, we get to a, a a double album of sorts. So kind of as a tester for this, I should mention it because some people will, will bring it up. There was the Still Day Beneath the Sun EP, which was, I, I've heard the band describe as a little tester for what they were going to do with Damnation. But um, I, personally, I don't really think it's hugely of note. But coming up to 2002, 2003, the band went to the studio and recorded two albums together. The idea... Um, Michael came up with was we really like our prog stuff and we have too many prog riffs to use them all on an album without it losing its heavy edge so why don't we do one more death metal leaning album certainly with still prog touches in there but more focusing on their extremity and one album focusing on the prog stuff and great as this idea is apparently it almost destroyed the band like Michael didn't have enough material written going into studio they, I think this is their last album at uh, Studio Freeman, and they said when they got there, none of the equipment was working, half the shit they needed wasn't there. So they spent months in studio. They hadn't written these these albums fully before getting there. They were mainly making this up in studio from collections of riffs. Like, Michael would play a part at uh, at Lopez, and he'd be like, okay, that's, that's the riff, I'll record a drum beat, we'll stitch this all together at the end. And it was apparently a nightmare. It nearly killed Michael because there's a point in the band where him and Peter had diverged in their writing and he was doing the majority of the writing. Peter was primarily adding half the solos. Um, Mendez and Lopez were hugely adding to their parts, but Michael had the primary songwriting duty. It was his job to arrange everything. 
So they were desperately trying to record essentially, what, like 140 minutes of music, something like that. And the only thing that saved this with all this disastrous recording going on was, again, they got Steve Wilson in for three weeks to do all the leads, vocals, all the, the, the kind of beautiful stuff that goes on top of the heavy rhythm sections. And apparently Steve Wilson's appearance salvaged these albums. The recording suddenly became fun again. They were able to play around with bizarre ideas, add in all these out there keyboard parts to both the heavy and the light album, and really go for it vocally with all, like, again, far more harmonies than even Blackwater Park had, far more interesting vocal ideas. So we'll get to Damnation. That's weird. It's kind of weird position in the OPF catalogue as a more of a true prog album than anything death metal influenced. But they decided to release these two as two separate albums. And first of all, in 2002, they put out Deliverance, which is their the kind of possibly one of the heavier albums. I, I think possibly one of the more flawed of this period, but it still features a track like Deliverance itself, which is a live staple and for many people the best song they've ever written. And one of the longest, uh, uh, over 13 minutes. It beautifully concise, even in that huge runtime. It's a... It is a truly masterful track. Um, I'll throw it to you first on this one, Ian. How do you go on with Deliverance as an album? I gotta say, uh, of all the Opeth albums, this is the one that I forget the most often. And I'm not totally sure how that happens, but maybe it is them just leaning so much on the heaviness that it doesn't feel as uniquely Opeth. I guess, as a lot of their other albums. Now, make no mistake, especially with this last listen through, I mean, it opens and ends with two of my favorite songs I've ever done. Uh, Wreath is excellent, and uh, especially by the pain I see in others. Besides that weird outro to it, which I'm not huge on, when you're driving a car and, you know, you're listening off your phone, that it's a pain to figure out, is this thing still going? But, you know, despite my problems with it, it's still a great album. But between the song lengths, you know, this is a very uh, long-winded album, I would say. And the overall just upped nastiness of it, it's never the thing I reach for when I want to listen to Opeth. I think really, as far as just a completely soft song, all they allow themselves was uh, For Absent Friends. A name taken from a Genesis song, so, you know, bonus points there. But, you know, that's two minutes of, you know, very quiet music, and then it's back to, you know, another ten-minute, mostly heavy track. It's great at what it does, but it's not my favorite thing they've ever done. It's probably the one I listen to the least often out of any of their early albums, really. But, uh, you know, when it's time for still a great, um, especially dark Opeth album that has some excellent riffs, some great songwriting, and still definitely worth checking out. I, I think this is the first Opeth album where they really experimented with a more angular dissonance that, like, is, is not something that's present in what a really very um harmonic albums um still life and and uh and blackwater park there is no dissonance on those albums well i mean here and there 
right? But like here, it's really brought to the forefront. And I think I, I think of like the kind of opening chords of the iconic uh, title track here. It's, it's like it's a diminished, weird chord. It's like that, um, just it's it's completely dissonant, and that is prevalent throughout this album and and for me kind of like is quite a radical departure um from what they did on the on the album previously um consequently i don't quite like it as much because i'm kind of like a pretty pretty metal guy (laughs) whatever that means (laughs) um and and but but i i completely think that um deliverance is one of the greatest songs they've ever written i completely agree with you phil like it's it's just it's it's a masterpiece uh it's it's full of riffs and it it just is just so kind of uncomfortable but sweeping and epic and just masterful like it's doing what opeth do but like without without being quite so accessible and i really really like that um i also I will go up and kill for a fair judgment, um, which is actually, you know, I know you said for absent frenzy and, but, um, you know, a fair judgment until the end of the song is actually, you know, just pure like sixties folk rock. Basically it's got like these kind of, true. Uh, (laughs) sixties vocal harmonies and, 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 uh, and actually, uh, I'd probably argue my favorite Opeth guitar solo. The second one is just yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Um, and then, you know, and then you have tracks like Master's Apprentices, right? <laughs> it's just like, that is just fucking death metal, right? Like, where, like, how often did they do that within the course of their career? And like, not often, where they just do, I'm going to do a death metal song about Satan. Fuck yeah kicks ass i love it <laughs> yes i gotta jump in here like yeah i i truly on this album the the songs that have always stood out to me are deliverance and master's apprentice deliverance for obvious reasons everyone knows that's an incredibly masterful take on what they do particularly with that drawn out ending where they just use the same rhythm but then master's apprentice is such a good example of it's one riff with a repetitive vocal f- refrain like just keeps going over it but it's hefty and it's so punishing for that. And then suddenly that latter section, which has some of the greatest moves from like suddenly heavy to suddenly light, this side of Drapery Falls. It's absolutely spectacular. The only thing that lets this down is you can tell, um, now I've heard it at least, you can tell the messiness of the recording. This is the worst the drums will ever sound in Opeth post the first four albums like they're they're just not getting quite the capture they want and there's some elements to the songwriting you can see like okay this probably wasn't the most focused on part of this but they salvaged something spectacular out of it to me for me to say it's my least favorite of this still life period like still life onwards period does not uh that is it's still like a nine out of ten album i just think there's some moments that don't hit quite as perfectly as some of their other stuff yeah i think everybody should know if it's not entirely obvious that like when we like detract from an opeth album from this period (laughs) 
we're we're splitting ass right <laughs> 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 this is this is outstanding excellent fucking album um and uh yeah god it's it's really good and, and it, but it is really really interesting album within their career because they i think it's the only album at least within this period where they really did try and do something that's not easy on the ears um in in a kind of sonic sense or a harmonic sense um and largely i think they succeed remarkably well personal like favorite of mine so this brings us to the other half of this this two album uh, set uh damnation which is opeth's like real uh wander into the unknown where so throughout their their career my god i felt i've been a big prog rock fan like really into his 70s stuff like if you you watch any interview of him that's his favorite genre of music is like the 60s 70s progressive rock particularly like into the obscure stuff and this was the first album where they really got to play with that. And I think, for me, I think they created a thing of beauty on par with their extreme moments. I I absolutely love this album. Um, it's, it's melodic in so many ways, but it's also, it has some of that still life melancholy in certain places. Hugely emotionally powerful with the writing. You get the absolute best Steve Wilson contributions. Like, he really helps steer this album in an interesting direction. And the songs don't lose any of the darkness of Opeth, despite losing pretty much any trappings of at least a post-1985 metal band. Like, maybe you could still call this a metal album, but it's, it, there's no blast beats, there's no scream vocals, like... 
even the distortion on the guitars is dialed back. Everything is melodic and beautiful. And despite the poor, like, studio setup they were dealing with, the tones on this album are suddenly incredible. And it highlights something we've never, we haven't had a chance to speak about before. Um, we suddenly get to the other brilliant element of, like, Lopez's playing, of he is one of the best Phil writers ever. Like, that guy is so good at that. Well, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I, I I do think that the, the production is absolutely gorgeous. Um, the band sounds amazing. Um, Lopez's delicate touch on this shows that he, if it wasn't obvious already, he is not a, a blaster. He's he's a he's a fill guy. Um, he's a groove guy, and he just he just he's he's brilliant on this record, and, and I, I absolutely love it. And, and 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 the sound of the album is absolutely fantastic. All of the songs are excellent my complaint is that there's a monochromatic dreariness to this album that that sets it apart from the light and shade that we experience with almost every other opeth album it it's it's just really really sad all the way through and there's very little to latch onto in terms of like something to kind of like pick you up out of it the you know there are there are riffs like it's not heavy but there there i mean there are gorgeous licks don't get me wrong but i can't escape the feeling that every one of the songs on this album would have been better placed as one of the acoustic songs on another Opeth album with some heaviness on either side of it. And that is my take. And I can see you guys looking at me like, oh, you heretic. <laughs> All right. Well, um, as even though I said My Arms Your Hearse is my favorite Opeth album, I have to throw an asterisk on that because... This is the album that I've listened to the most by some margin, and it really, um, and with that comes, you know, the other edge of the sword, which is every time I break this out, I am (laughs) horrifically depressed, (laughs) which makes that, um, you know, that monochromatic sadness actually very comforting to me, and I don't know. Maybe it's a it's a catharsis album more than anything else. But it's if I'm in you know an absolute pit of a mood, throwing this on, it's like well, somebody feels the same things. I'm not alone in this. It's it's a comfort album for me. As deeply sad as it is, I relate to it, and listening to it genuinely helps a lot of the time. Um, and I think if there was that dynamic of, you know, the a heavier element coming in or a certain light shining in, um, I don't know if I would respond to the album as a whole the same way. Because, again, even though this is an album where it's a lot easier to take individual songs to them because it's much more just an album of individual songs as opposed to, you know, these massive suites that 
Opeth is known for writing, uh, it still has this very consistent flow that I think is, you know, the real hallmark of Opeth's sound overall. And with the exception of ending credits, which um, I still think epilogue for Mimes, your hearse is miles better. Uh, everything else on this album just, it hits an absolutely dreary mood perfectly. And with the exception of that one instrumental, um, I can't pick anything wrong with it. The lyrics are perfect for this kind of music. Ockerfeld singing, I think, is the best that he has ever managed on this album. And that's me being a big fan of his clean singing. Uh, and especially when Steve Wilson gets in on the backing vocals with like uh, Death Whispered and a Lullaby. It's just bleak perfection to me. Uh, it really is. And it sounds excellent, but you guys covered that already, so I'd, I'll just reiterate. So I, I, I want to like come up with like this. I know this is the first like real divisive one with fans. There's a lot of people who can't stand this album because they like over heavier stuff. So apologies to those people. I have got two people who quite like this album in their varying ways. I must say I lean more to towards the instance, but just just to, for those fans, I understand where you're coming from. I just disagree. Um, so to respond to kind of Matt's comments to some extent, um, you're completely right. You are you are absolutely right. This is the first Opeth album where they truly shed that thing they were really good at in the last two or last three, sorry, of going heavy to light. That's not really there. These are all in a vein but I, I i have the same reaction ian has to it where it's just there's something slightly magical about this album that i can't really put into words i hear the opening notes of window pane and it creates a emotion in me which is you know hard to categorize i just i feel that simultaneous joy and sadness you get when there's a, a sad song you know well that is just really good and that will flow through the whole album Biggest problem with this album, actually, I have is I get to the end of To Rid the Disease and it sort of tails off. That's that is, I think, the the biggest problem of ending credits is is not bad, but it's not epilogue, and weakness is is too little. It's it's almost like there's just not enough happening for me to really latch onto. But at its highs, like I've, I've, To Rid the Disease um, and Window Pain, I would say are probably those moments. It is spectacular. I just find it so emotionally engaging. But it's an album I don't... With their other stuff, I can identify individual moments where it's like, oh, that thing they did there was cool. This one, it's just like, oh, I, I like how it feels. Don't get me wrong. I think every song on this album is fucking great. Um, Window Pane, yep, a, a beautiful, beautiful song. My, my personal favorite is To Rid the Disease. I think that is an absolute classic of uh, opeth songs it's more a case for me simply that i don't find myself in a headspace where i want to listen to that for 50 minutes um it, 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 you know i i i can i can be in a i want to listen to to rid the disease mood and that will happen sure uh, uh but it's just kind of like damnation I, I, I uh, yeah, it, it, I, I just don't want to sit down and listen to it over and over again. I, I, and and I, sh I should actually qualify that statement with the clarification that I have listened to this 
over and over and over and over and over and over again um, 10 years ago. But I think I kind of burnt, burnt it out in a sense. I guess uh, between this album and knowing what sort of person Stephen Wilson seems to be, uh, I got to dial back to just saying it's really funny the uh, showing up at the recording studio made putting these albums together fun. Because <laughs> there's really not a shred of fun on this album. <laughs> So um, I'm going to sort of bring up a few things here because we're, we're obviously moving into the end of what we're going to be covering. We've got two more f- full albums, but a couple of live albums appear in the meantime. Firstly, Lamentations Live at Shepherd's Bush, which is a great follow-up uh, in the same year to Damnation where they played the entirety of Damnation in full as an opening set and then did a heavy set to follow. And it is a truly fantastic DVD. Um the only capturing you're going to get a high quality of actually seeing um, Martin Lopez playing drums for the band and truly shows off um, his drumming skills. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up is like it's incredible. Like if you look at their kind of um, building on closure, turning it from a four minute to an eight minute song, like you see the kind of prog leanings of this band. But what it puts me in mind of, which I find frustrating with modern Opeth mainly because they just got successful and I can't hold that against them, is this is coming to the end of that point where Opeth used to be of they suddenly had an audience where they were demanding songs. This is a weird-ass set. It's such a strange choice. Whereas, if you see them now, they will play Demon of the Fall, Ghost of Edition, Deliverance and Drapery Falls. Guaranteed, that is in every single Opeth set. It's interesting you look back at their older catalogue where they would do weird stuff live and really take risks even outside of their own albums to to, to play sets that maybe weren't the biggest crowd pleaser ever. But anyway, this brings us on to 2005's Ghost Reveries. There's a 
big change again, we have a um, move in terms of studio. Uh, they they go like they are now on Roadrunner Records, um, and they are recording at uh, Fascination Street with Jens Bogren, who is yeah well the, you own hundreds of albums by this like this guy produces. He's he's kind of a legend, and there is a slight change up in the lineup where they are now introducing the keyboards as a permanent part of the band. Pierre Weirberg of Spiritual Beggars fame and a, a man who's been in and around the metal scene for a long time. Like He appears as a guest on a lot of Arch Enemy albums pre this, as well as many other things. So there's, there's an extra layer added at this point. They suddenly lose a lot of that twin guitar harmony has gone from a sound for this suddenly very bass and drum heavy album this almost like probably more so riff led than um than Blackwater Park. Um it is it is a very, very different album. I know again another slightly divisive one. I guess I guess I'll go to you first, Matt. Well, how do you feel about this one? Who are these haters? Where, where how is this album divisive? I do not know these people. But um yes, so this is this is my favourite uh Opeth album. Um my my favorite Opeth album has changed constantly over the years, but uh, as of right now, and really, I guess over the past like five to ten years, I don't know when did it come out? Two thousand five. Two thousand five. So ten years is fine. Um, this this has been my my favorite album. Um, I think this is the pinnacle of um, Martin Lopez's contribution to the band. He but this is the Martin Lopez album, in my opinion, characterized by uh, the, uh, the 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 baying of the hounds um, and Harlequin Forest, where he just plays the sexiest grooves that have ever been delivered by a metal drummer in the history of this fucking genre. Um, he's just the boss. Um, the prog elements are here. Like absolutely every, everything. Like, well, let me let me let me backtrack. Everything is here. It's everything that the band had been doing in their previous albums, hinting at ever since Orchid. It's it's all finally coalescing into this just perfection of of songwriting and technical execution from the musicians and the production staff it sounds perfect every little tiny piece of this album is brilliant there's nothing about it there's no fat there's nothing you could shred away there's no there's no songs that go on for a minute too long you could say it's okay i'll say it's the best album ever made Fuck you, the Beatles. It's the best album ever made. Um, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be hyperbolic or anything. <laughs> well, shoot. How do I follow that exactly? Um, well, this is where my whole journey with Opeth started. Um, because, you know, when I first uh, wanted to try them out, um, part of the kick was, of all people, my mom's uncle knew I was really big into Prague. And he said, hey, you like Prague, you should check out this band Opeth. They're like, uh, you know, yes or Genesis, but they got death metal parts. And uh, 
he gave me a stack of CDs saying, you know, here's what I got. Check this out. Ghost Reveries, uh, that cover art really caught my attention. So that was the first one I put on. And, uh, you know, what a way to be introduced to a band hearing the first 10 seconds of a Ghost of Perdition. I think that is the single best opening moment on any Doesn't of their albums. Well. It sets a tone so well. I do have to say, um, I mentioned it briefly, you know, talking about My Arms or Her, Still Life. I do wish the concept that Michael Ockerfeld originally had planned for this album did come to fruition, because it sounded like it was going to be really cool and really nasty. But, you know, what we ended up with was still an outstanding album. The addition of just these, like, slidey Hammond organs under all the heavy riffing, I think was... It sounds excellent. You know, it, it will... I'll never outgrow Hammond organs, and this album's got plenty of them. Listening back to it, what really strikes me is... Uh, I guess, since you mentioned the Beatles, how much of a psych tinge there is to some of this. Like, especially on the song Atonement, that that song sounds like it should come with, you know, a multicolored <laughs> oil slide to be pointing at the wall with your uh, projector. Just, and I love that, because um, over time, having gotten into metal through this album, you know, I got into stoner metal as well, and Atonement's just this awesome mix of where my taste in metal came from and where it ended up going later. Um, but yeah, the songwriting on this is excellent. Um, I think uh, Grand Conjuration is one of the best examples of a 10-minute song still having a conventional structure and choruses. Like it, the, it just works so well that way. And yeah, whether it's the soft stuff or the heavy stuff, just everything that happens in this album is just polished to such a bright shine that again it's hard to find faults with it yeah so to follow up on what Ian was saying I think so Matt's like a couple good couple of years older than me and Ian I'm over a couple of years older than Ian myself but this was my intro I was I was 15 when the sound came out and I bought it when it came out off the back of something that is truly hard to listen to now a five minute edit of Ghost of Position that was put out as a single I don't know if anyone's heard that it's absolutely Ooh. horrendous to listen to but when i first heard it i was like that's like this sounds really interesting bought the full album and it took some adjustment at that point in time i was just getting into death metal i was huge into arch enemy and just discovered carcass uh like kind of heartwork era so opeth were pulling some stuff that was a bit weird and out there, and the kind of the mellower out moments of this album, particularly Isolation Years for Atonement, they took a little adjustment. But when this seeped in, and you know what it's like when you get an album when you're, you know, 14, 15, you spend a lot of time with it. I know every in and out of this album. Like, I, I cannot be objective about it because I know it so well. And for all my saying, I, I know it has haters. I know people see this as the point where they truly diverge from the Blackwater Park kind of format. I think it's I think it's absolutely incredible. I think it I think the lean towards the heavier is pulled off so much better than Deliverance. When they go heavy, it is so dark. Like that very simplistic like bass groove to Grand Conjuration is huge. And then you get like brilliant prog moments like 
one of the greatest things about this album is that run, like near in, uninterrupted run of um, Baying of the Hounds into Beneath the Mire, which sounds almost like a continuous 20 minutes of music that is just starts off so heavy and ends up in this weird prog outro. That, yeah, truly mesmeric stuff. Like it's, and it's the sun heavy focus on a rhythm section. I think some of this is to do with the internal nature of the band at the time. Like, this is the point where, essentially, Peter was on his way out of the band. He'd stopped really writing for the many form. Apparently, he only has one guitar solo on this album. Like he's, he's, he's not really present as a writing force, whereas he had been for almost everything else, barring maybe Damnation. And I think this is where... He was saying that this is a great Lopez performance, and it truly is. It is an incredible Lopez performance. But I think this is the point where Mendez becomes the right-hand man. He becomes the yes. eternal, like, second part of this band. Like, particularly you listen to a song like Baying of the Hounds, the bass playing is so complex and inventive in that track. And he's really found his footing as that guy who would go on to be the longest-running uh, member of Opeth outside of, obviously, Michael Ackerfeld, who is Opeth, essentially. It's so interesting to me, Phil, and it says so much about you that... Um like a 14 year old Phil was listening to an album of this expansiveness and being like, yes, this is where I'm going to go. Um, <laughs> I would not have been ready for this at 14. Hell no. Like I would have been like, what the fuck is this? Like, give me some Slayer. Um, I think, I think I must've been 15 cause it's 2005, but it was like, <laughs> it was definitely at that point where I was like, I'm going to get this. I'm going to make this work for me. And it did take some time, I've got to say. What a, what a worthwhile endeavour. Um, mm. Just 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 a, a really, really brilliant album that that has, like you say, um, you know, grand duration, like just heavy-ass death metal song. And then, and then just, I, I would, I, probably the only other thing that I would, I would add beyond the everything i've already said is that i think that isolation years is probably my favorite outro song on like any opeth album it just it's beautiful and they, they have so lots follow, of beautiful songs but, but i want to follow up on that like um because as i say this was such a formative album i didn't get the mellow stuff on this for a while like uh hours of hours of wealth and atonement i i, I wasn't sure about it. i was like well this isn't heavy and i like heavy stuff and then one day I let it play through to Isolation Years and just had this sudden pang of emotion be like, oh shit, this is beautiful. This is like really, really special. And as a teenager, just had that moment of like, oh, maybe stuff can be good and not heavy. <laughs> I'm almost trying to imagine how my life might have played out if I'd have had like that existential moment when I was 15. My goodness. But I, 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 I get it. Like, I mean that's that's what this album does. It's what it should do to folks. Like it, it's it's rich in every form of lyrical and um, sonic content. Like it, it, and it's delivered perfectly from the from the musicians and and, and the production staff. It's it, it's just engineered in to perfection. What more can you say? It's, it's just a masterpiece.
there's a bit of a move between Ghost Reveries and um, the next release uh, the band put out was the Roundhouse Tapes in 2007, which, um, if you want to know any more information about, uh, Matt did an absolutely fantastic review for our Live Albums episode a few months back, so go back and check that out. But um, basically, moving on, we'll, we'll discuss what happened. Um, coming up is Watershed 2008, their ninth album. There is a huge lineup change in the band. Apparently, during the recording of Ghost Reveries, despite, as we say, his performance sounds amazing and the writing is so good, but apparently Lopez's health issues had got to him and he just couldn't perform with the band. Apparently, even to the extent of the recording of Ghost Reveries was quite difficult because he couldn't play whole 10-minute-long songs. He was suffering and really sad he had to leave the band and was replaced by um incredible uh like technically proficient drummer uh martin axenrot who at the time being long-standing member of witchery recently played on um oh i'm blanking the niflheim album but you know he'd been around the swedish scene in some fairly like luminary bands for a while and really picked up where where kind of Lopez left off, but with quite a different style. But, you know, he seemed like the logical uh, replacement after, obviously, I think uh, we alluded to this earlier, Gene Hoagland briefly filling in on a tour for some of the more interesting Opeth sets I think uh, anyone's ever seen. And following up with that, before um, before we get to the point of this album, he's on the Roundhouse tapes, but he, he leaves around... Um, 2007 Peter Lindgren like as as Michael has said in a lot of interviews he'd kind of something had happened there dynamic where Peter was no longer able to contribute to the writing and I don't want to read into that what what actually happened there like I don't know whether one guy was kind of shut down or if he really didn't have ideas that fit the band anymore but his time sort of with them came to an end and they picked up a guitarist they've been touring with uh Frederick Akerson, who had been playing with Arch Enemy through 2005 to 2007 as a fill-in while Chris Amott stepped down for that band briefly between albums. Frederick Akerson is a ludicrous guitarist. He is one of those true, like, technical wizards. Like, he picked up Arch Enemy's entire set in a couple of months and then jumped ship from Arch Enemy when Chris returned and then picked up Opeth's entire hour-and-a-half headline set both bands that have a heavy focus on solos, etc. If you look at uh, Frederick's like metal archives, the guy's been in thousands of bands. He's an incredibly gifted player. I think fans missed Peter to a large extent. Like he was, he was such a cool presence in the band. This very tall, imposing, skinny Swedish guy. Like he's kind of part of the history of Opeth, and I, I really miss his era. But I don't hold that against Frederick. Like. Someone had to fill in his shoes. Peter stepped down from the band willingly. And Frederick brought something very new to the band. And for a lot of people, what him and Axe brought did really change things up. Otherwise, the lineup is unchanged. We have Mendes still on bass and Pierre Weirberg um, is, is playing keyboards for this album. And it's another recording with, um, with Jens um, and still on Road Runner Records. But this was the first time I'd been alive, well, sort of, alive and into them for the release of an album. So I remember the build-up to Watershed. I remember hearing the single Porcelain Heart and being like, ooh, shit, things have changed. And Watershed is a very standalone album for Opeth. 
For me, I think it sounds nothing like anything else they ever did. It has some very extreme moments, some very melodic moments, which is something the band are very known for, but it also has the most dalliances with weirdo prog ideas. So we have stuff like reversed vocal tracks, a section where a guitar is down-tuned while being played, general like conversation noise in the background of a song, that weird modulated laugh, like... Opeth got a bit out there and experimental on this one, and I think it has positive results, but it's very different. This one was the first one that I tracked down and bought of my own accord after, you know, my mom's uncle provided me with a bunch of their other albums. So this one had the personal investment of me being in the store saying, I want to be an Opeth fan now. I'm consciously getting this for that reason. And I was not ready for this album at that point. Over the years, it really has blossomed to be one of my favorite albums they've done, uh, because of how weird it is. Because um, I think when I first got it, you know, Coil is a beautiful intro song, um, especially with the woman they had to sing the duet. Like that That's a just gorgeous way to start the album. Um, and Burden was... Uh, one that I really loved early on. There was a good span of time where I would have called Burden my favorite Opeth song. It's still pretty close to the top. Uh, again, Hammond organ. But over the years, the the weirder moments have really seeped in, and I've gotten to appreciate just how bizarre they were, and also how... yeah, I feel like... Picking a heaviest Opeth album is a weird thing to try to do. Overall, it's probably Deliverance. But there are moments on this album that I'd posit are the most extreme they'd ever gotten. And I don't know if that's, you know, Axenrot being in there. Also, has there ever been a better name for a death metal drummer? But anyway, just his presence gives... It, it, it gives these songs such a ballast and a forward charge that... It just, when this album gets heavy, it is destructive. And I love that about it. But at the same time, yeah, you have these, like, I th flutes show up and things like that, even if they're just Mellotron flutes. I'm not, um, like, Lotus Eater is borderline incomprehensible, and it's one of my favorite songs they've ever done for it. Uh, it it's just bizarre, and I love that. And. You're right, it's a very singular album that is... I've realized just now how many albums we've said actually are very singular from them. I guess that's just a testament to how great they are as a band. But um, it, it stands out as such a weird album, but it's a favorite of mine. I genuinely love it. Um, as it happens, I know a bit more forgiving. This is a kind of where my fandom with them also drops off pretty severely. Uh, no shade towards the later stuff. I know it's good. It's just not what I want from them. I'll let people have their fun. But for this, like, this one final shining moment, this band could do beauty, intensity, and on this album, weirdness, in such wonderful equal and, uh, it's It still gets pretty regular plays for me. I caught quite a bit of what um, Ian was saying, but not all of it. So I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance if I repeat what he was saying. But Watershed, the 
the name of the album is actually speaking to Mikhail's intentions because this was the final one this is where it but this is this is the dividing line between the the the, the death metal era and what would come afterward but it but it's a little bit more like the what comes afterwards than it is um what came before but nevertheless it has some of the heaviest material that the band ever recorded and in in said the same thing right like um hair apparent is absolutely brutal as fuck but it has flutes in it like it just it's it's crazy i i i come from slightly different place where you know i was already very heavily into opeth before this album came out so like when the uh, female vocals came in in coil i was looked i was quite taken aback i mean i was what what is this now i love it i really do enjoy it and and like ian says like i go back to this album quite a lot but um it is ex- ex- extremely and perhaps excessively proggy in places i mean that there's that like major kind of like prog breakout in like lotus eater that's just kind of (laughs) it's like it's proper prog there's the you mentioned the point where they're literally detuning the guitars as they are in the song he's literally i don't know how they did that but i can only assume that he's literally playing that and somebody's kind of twiddling the machine heads while he's playing it's so good like talk about how they 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 go towards like almost like stadium rock in some places like in burden i almost feel like that's kind of the most powerful mikhail's vocals have ever sounded even as they've gone on into the uh you know the the fully clean period. I mean, his his vocals there are, are, are I, I, I don't know who to compare him to in the mainstream of music, but like he he feels like he could hold hold his own with a. Oh God, I don't know. But no, I I I I think it's a it's a very interesting album, um, and with loads of incredibly enjoyable moments and 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 especially the beginning of the album is is really really jarring when you think about it in the context of everything they did before but what i find is that everything that kind of comes after that is like it's memorable because it's weird and it's not memorable because it's good and like i kind of like Okay, yo, they detuned the guitars, or they did some weird bit where the riffs are not in time with the drums, or they detuned it. The hints of gimmick, gimmickiness, and I don't know if that's my lack of appreciation for Prague, but what would come after this? would be more of the same and and <laughs> i guess that's why we're talking about this band from uh orchid to watershed and not the rest i i do actually have similar issues to um to him around watershed if i was to be put on the spot i would say morning rise through to ghost reveries is a near perfect run of seven albums maybe give or take deliverance watershed i 
I have issues with. There's something about that change of sound. And I think I think this is the difference between me and Matt as we came to this. Like I so in that five year like in that two year period between the release of well, maybe two or three, between me getting into them and this coming out, I had digested and understood every second of what OPEF was. And then there was this huge lineup change and this real change in their sound. And I've never quite accepted it with Watershed. And I was talking about Frederick Aitkerson being this incredible guitarist, and he really is. But the leads take a huge turn with the sound. And it's something actually a really big factor of... So Michael was the primary soloist. Peter plays one solo on the whole of Ghost Reveries. Whereas from this point on, Frederick is the lead guitarist because obviously he's a more accomplished player. He's a more technical musician. And there's something about like Axe's approach to the drumming which just sounds that much different. For me, this sounds like a totally different band. I l truly love moments of it. I think Coil is beautiful. I was saying like it's the first like real guest vocal thing where no one's ever been like when someone's like there. Steve Wilson was regular as backing vocals would have the odd line. No one has ever been given the stage like um, uh, Natalie Lorix was given in that opening track. Who, interestingly, not a professional singer, that's just Axe's wife, who happened to be in the studio at the time, was given the second half of that song. I don't know if it was even intended originally, or if it's something they just, like, she happened to be about, so they gave her a go. And she sounds fantastic. That song is amazing. As much as I know our friend Donovan said that put him off the band for life, almost. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and I really enjoy some of those heavier moments that kind of follow it, like... Uh, Air Apparent has some brilliant riffs to it, Lotus Eater as well. I do like some of those almost weird breaks. But as Matt says, there is a thing that sort of happens at the end of Burden. We're like, and now the album takes a slightly odd turn into strange experimentalism. And I kind of always knew Opeth before that for being this tightly honed perfection. Whereas here they're playing with ideas, which is something I've never heard from them before. And it's not terrible, but I don't love it as much. Yeah, I mean, sadly, I guess we're all cavemen at the end of the day, right? Like, because, like, if you give <laughs> us the choice between a crazy jazz, like, breakout and a fucking all-time riff and some double kick, I guess that's why we like metal. This is why Ian is the more enlightened of us. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I'm getting really into weird jazzy stuff lately, so I'd, I'm probably just gonna keep liking this album. So the one thing I want to bring up this album that's always struck me as a, a just a thing I can't explain is I do not get the closer Hex Omega. I think it's a perfectly like okay Opeth song. Why has that become a set closer for the band? That's inexplicable uh, and more to the point unjustifiable i guess it the only answer can be that they've gotten bored of playing uh demon of the fall uh which is understandable i guess but like um the every opeth every opeth set should end with something other than hex omega uh there's a rich rich back catalogue of songs to uh, pick from. Uh, I, I have my suggestions. I gotta break what I've been doing with every other album, which is ignoring bonus tracks to say, gotta say, that cover of Bridge of Size is my favorite cover song they've ever done. 
also title track on one of my top 10 favorite albums ever that they're covering. So, uh, ooh, such a good cover. I, I guess I'll I'll help you segue into maybe the closing section of this podcast by saying, you know, like, I enjoyed Watershed when it came out. I, I, I really was impressed by their, the, the, you know, their, their ability and their willingness to like really go in new directions. I didn't love it, but I was kind of like, okay, you know, they're like, what, like nine albums in, I mean, like, you know, kind of give them a chance. And, and, and then heritage came and I did not like heritage. Um, in fact, I fucking hated heritage. Uh, and and what do you guys think about like new newer Opeth? Because like I find a lot of stuff in there that I really really like now. Like I I I I still don't particularly like heritage, and I never listen to it. Pale Communion. I think yeah, whatever. But I I I like. Sorceress, I love the new album. Court of Inenum, especially especially the Swedish version. I, I I love hearing Mikhail sing in that language, but you know, it's always a curiosity and something that I like to hear. I mean, what do you guys think? As I said, uh, Watershed was the last album that came out before I got into Opeth. So Heritage was a hype cycle for me. And, uh, you know, at that point I was really leaning into, you know, my freshly embraced love of metal, stepping away from, you know, all the prog I'd been listening to through high school. So then Heritage came out, sounding like all the prog I'd been listening to through high school. And um, I spent the whole time thinking, it's good enough for what it is, but I don't want this. And it, it did kind of sour me on their later career. Um, it, by all means, I've heard stuff from later in it, and it's good. But I'm always plagued with the idea that you know this was uh, them losing the edge that I think set them apart from all that '70s prog that I'd already loved. And by all means, I definitely understand that Michael Ocker felt um, just couldn't quite do it anymore with the death metal vocals um and that's fair i know he still does songs live uh listening to the red rocks performance um you can tell even when they're doing demon of the fall uh he does not have the range he used to but i mean he he's getting older it is what it is and uh, they're obviously still successful i'm glad they're still able to do these big headline tours because they built up a great career, and even if what they're doing now isn't to my tastes, I understand for a lot of people it still is, and I'm happy those people can love those albums. Maybe I'll come around to them down the line, but for now, if I want to listen to Opeth, it's going to end at Watershed, because that's the Opeth I really fell in love with, and uh, you know, if I want to listen to my dad, Prague, I have different places to go for that. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting summation. Like, I, I'm more or less on a similar vein. I remember when Heritage came out being very disappointed because I was really expecting Damnation Part 2. 
and it's very much not that that album like Pierre Werberg leaves the band and uh, I forget his name but the new keyboard player has a very different sensibility and the mix of the two on that album is is very different it's an album I've revisited many years later and I actually think there is something there it is but it does not feel like an Opeth album anymore. They they, they moved... They, something happened at Watershed. And almost Watershed included. They became a very different band. And I'm happy they still exist. So I'm not going to hold that against them in the slightest. I think almost certainly Pale Communion for me is the worst album they've ever put out. I think it's too generically just like a kind of proggy album. It's... it's there's something missing there, whereas Sorceress and, and Court of Anenum, I think, has some actually quite cool, like, interesting stuff happening, even if they'll never touch my favourites. But the problem is, the band lost what it was I truly loved, but they will forever, for me, be battling with my fucking nostalgia. So who knows if it's it's a case of, like, they lost it or, um, or uh, you know, I just stopped being a teenager who's obsessed with one band. Like... I, I, I can't say. And it, it led to some interesting stuff, as I mentioned earlier. I, when they toured Heritage, they did this amazing set where they only played their mellow tracks, which was fucking incredible. I remember losing my mind at them playing Credence Ooh. live, because I never <laughs> thought I'd wow. see that. I, and they 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 really going out there and doing stuff like that. But the sad thing about that mellow set is, that leads to the thing I was saying, that it's a last point where they weren't a crowd-pleaser band. And a thing that was also lost with that tour was that's when Pierre Weirberg left the band, who I think by far is the best backing vocalist they've ever had live. None of the other guys are as good a vocally as him, which is becoming a bit of a problem now they're leaning into the vocal harmonies so much. Like, none of Frederick and the keyboard player can't match, like, Steve Wilson, whereas Pierre Weirberg, he's got a good heavy metal voice. Um... I still, still thoroughly enjoy seeing Opeth live. I mean, the second coolest Opeth thing I've ever seen was the moment uh, at Bloodstock, I think 2015, 16, where I saw him leave stage and Michael Ackerfeld walked off stage and two tiny blonde children grabbed either of his hands <laughs> as he was leaving stage, which is the most adorable thing I've ever seen at a metal gig. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of cute. But it was a shame because Opeth have now become the crowd pleaser. Whereas I remember the first time I saw Opeth at Bloodstock back in, I think, 2008, something like that. I nearly got in a fight with a guy who was saying the set was shit because they didn't play Deliverance. And it was that thing of, like, they didn't always play Deliverance because it's 15 fucking minutes. Like, and it's... But then... Am I just being a fucking gatekeeper, just going like, well, they were cool when I knew them and they weren't popular, or weren't super popular at any rate? I think with this band, that's not a thing, right? Because, like, even even we've talked about our subtle differences in our favorite little periods. We talked about the black metal first couple of albums, the five death metal albums after and, and and like each of us has expressed favorite periods within that so no you're not you're not being a gatekeeper but that guy was being a dick because like that's one song of dozens of tremendous songs and it's just fucking hard for a band with like 15 albums under their belt to try and figure out which songs to play i mean seriously let's also be really fair here and say that uh 
I think most gatekeepers are going to scoff at people listening to Opeth. So, uh, yeah, don't don't think we have to be too concerned there. But whatever you think about their last four albums, and I, I, I know it's a hugely divisive subject. Some truly love them. Some think it's their best ever work. I, I recently saw a video on YouTube where someone rated Pell Communion as the best thing they ever did. Like, people are going to have a different relationship because the band made a huge move and a huge change. But I think the thing will never be debatable is the importance of the nine we covered they had such an impact in different ways over the years orchid apparently all the guys in emperor when they were recording prometheus fucking obsessed with that album and that, that became a huge part of things so even at their weirdo early beginnings they were like having such an impact and then i remember like you look back at bands that were forming in the early sort of 2003 times like that the amount of people who were trying to do Blackwater Park but had no understanding of how to do prog and just fell flat on their face is 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 incredible but I just love that it it propelled progressiveness into the mainstream of metal which I think is one of the most important things for the kind of sounds I like and I think both of you like in metal. I couldn't agree more and Phil, like, obviously, you're the void hanger <laughs> abstract uh, avant-garde metal guy. One thing that um, I, as a listener of uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal, devout listener, um, note that we haven't really talked about is the album covers. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting for me just to like butt in and talk about this. Um, I think the best album covers actually came after Watershed. I, I actually really like the Watershed album, and that's great. I and and I I agree with Ian who referenced earlier the the Ghost Reveries album with the candles is fucking cool. But the Heritage album cover is amazing. Like the it, the tree and the uh, the 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 skulls of the former band members underneath the uh, underneath the tree is fucking cool and sorceress has a tremendous cover i, d- I don't know the meaning of the in court of venom album cover but phil what, what do you know about the album covers and which is your favorite so yeah this this is a good point i think the reason i haven't been harking on it too much is because i don't think opa for a band in the early days who did particularly great with album covers like i don't think damnation deliverance they feel kind of after 40 ghost reveries i love i think that's a beautiful cover and i quite like the early stuff like uh morning rise is a very cool cover mom's your hearse yeah mom's your hearse i don't think works at all still life quite good it but you i think you're quite right like they actually got way better album covers later on i think in court of aninum is spectacular and and heritage really cool cover yeah for some reason opa for a band actually aesthetically i think what they did really well is less so the covers more the um the band photos that go along with them i always remember being like bowled over by the look of the band photos in Blackwater Park. Those kind of cool shots of them hemming around the woods looking like cool 70s people in a metal sense. And it's actually like they kind of did something recodifying how you could look in metal in 2001. Because they didn't look tough or hardcore. They didn't have patch jackets on. They are wearing like jeans and like cool leather jackets and looking stylish. 
And it, yeah, it's very interesting. I think album cover-wise, they didn't really change things in a huge way. Band photo-wise, they kind of did. That really makes me want to go out and just like search for those band pictures. You, yeah, in fact, Phil, you you gotta you gotta put put some of those up on your uh, on your Facebook page or something. The, the one I have to share as well is the incredible top hat photo sessions from um, from the Morning Rise era, which is the greatest mis- like greatest just failed thing of Michael Ackerfeld wearing a top hat, <laughs> where um, <laughs> Johan is there open shirted, like with his chest hair out, and they look like four people from four different bands. It's amazing. It's nuggets like this that make us listen to Phil's breakfast metal. <laughs> Share that picture, Phil. Um, I'm kind of in the same boat. Um, they definitely started really getting them right after uh, after Watershed happened. Although, yeah, okay, after, from Ghost Reveries onward, they had a pretty good idea of it. And yeah, Morning Rise is a, just a damn cool bridge, so of course it looks good. It's weird thinking back to Blackwater, such a monumental album, and the cover is kind of a gray smear of a pond. But it was very dark days for album art when that album came out anyway, so I don't think Opeth can really be blamed all that much for that. I, I think this is a good place to leave it. Like You, you can very much tell that there was no way with an Opeth episode not to avoid a bit of a fade out on it. We were obviously going to have our peak a bit earlier because we are your average kind of um, extreme metal fans and we liked it when they were a brutal band who were into death metal. It's not a problem that you've moved away from that, though. Firstly, I want to thank my guests for joining me, Matt and Ian. You, this has been so fuck much yeah. fucking fun to do. This is like a proper dream come true to get to do the Opeth episode. So before I go, um, Ian, do you want to plug your, your podcast? Because it's absolutely excellent. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, always good to hear somebody else say it and me to not have to guess whether or not it is. But yeah, um, as Phil said at the start... Um, Formerly of the, the defunct Are You Morbid, uh, if you just want some freewheeling metal discussion. But nowadays, um, working in a podcast called Shuffle Repeat with my old uh, Are You Morbid co-host, Zach. Uh, and it has been just a, an excellent way to dive through so many genres that I never thought would uh, be something I'd be into. I mean, we just put out an episode on Country Soul, and even five years ago, the very thought of that would have made me run for the hills. But yeah, Shuffle Repeat, we're on uh, pretty much anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Um, and every week, it's a different genre, just talking about whatever sounds good. So if you want to go exploring the deep world of music and all its many roots with uh, me and my buddy Zach, check us out. We'd be glad to have you. Uh, and Matt, I know you're no longer doing Punishing Brutality, but if uh, you want to let people follow you on social media... Well, if you guys like commentary on cricket and bird watching, then I'm, I am on uh, Twitter. <laughs> I'm not anywhere else, so uh, I'm sure you can find me if you look for me. Thanks, Phil, for having us. Yeah, it's been an honor. Oh, there no. Thanks so much for doing this. And everyone listening, thanks so much for supporting me for 100 episodes. This is kind of... Yeah, it's it's really strange getting this far in it. It's almost... Um, I think it's about a month away from five years of doing the podcast. And it's kind of... The last two years, I've kind of accelerated putting episodes out. So, yeah. Thanks so much for listening for all this time. And I hope this mammoth episode on Opeth didn't bore you to death. <laughs> <laughs> 
Congratulations, Phil. You're the man. Oh